this past week, I heard a story that I checked out on trutherfiction.com and four other Mythbuster websites just to make sure that all of the details were correct because some of these stories really begin to get all kinds of baggage added onto them the more times that they are told. But I'm pretty confident that this uh, story I'm going to relate to you is 100% uh, true. Larry Walters was a truck driver uh, who was based out of Los Angeles who was just getting bored to tears with his life. And he wanted to do something that would be significant. He wanted his life to count. And so on July 2, 1982, he tied 41 helium balloons, four feet uh, around uh, to a lawn chair. And uh, he was going to uh, try his hand at flying. He dubbed this Inspiration One. Here's a close-up picture of him just before he took off. Here's a color picture of uh, after they took all of the stuff off, cut it down from the power lines uh, afterwards. <laughs> and um, he says that he was rejected from the uh, Air Force because of his poor sight. But some people think it may have been that he was rejected because he was one brick uh, short of a full load. <laughs> anyway, his goal was to fly this uh, amazing contraption 30 to 100 feet above the ground and adjust his uh, height by dumping water out of those water bottles that you saw hanging from there and alternatively shooting balloons out, you know, if he started going too, too high. But when the cords that were tethering him down were cut, it started lifting off so fast. He about fell out of the chair and he lost his glasses. He ascended about 1,000 feet a minute and was hanging on for dear life by the time everything had settled out. He was flying along in the opposite direction that he wanted to go because he had gotten caught up in a cold wind at 16,000 feet. <laughs> now, since he was near the L.A. and the uh, Long Beach airports, there were planes that were flying underneath him, over top of him, on each side of him, and just freaking him out. And he wanted to get down... But every time he let go with one hand to get his pellet gun, you know, things would start tipping around. He was just scared to death. So he was up there for hours and hours. Now, the reason we know it was 16,000 feet is that there, were, there was a Delta pilot and a TWA pilot who radioed in and says, man, guys, there's a crazy man out here in a lawn chair at 16,000 feet. <laughs> and he had a CB radio with him. And... Uh, he was calling, Mayday, Mayday. I'm frozen to death. I'm numb. I'm lightheaded. I don't know what to do. And um, so he was up there for quite some time. But he was eventually really worried that he was going to be hit by an airplane. So he figured, I've got to risk it. He did have a parachute, but he was too cowardly to jump out. So he started shooting the, uh, the balloons. But because of the, the turmoil, he dropped his... Um, uh, pellet gun uh, out of his uh, contraption, it, nothing was going well for him. Now, I forget now if he cut away some of the balloons, but eventually he managed to descend, got caught up in high power electrical lines. It's amazing. He did not get electrocuted and he was dangling about five feet off the ground. Now, because he didn't get electrocuted, he didn't make it for the Darwin Awards, uh, though he was a, a runner up, you know, somebody who almost did. Uh, he jumped out of the contraption and was immediately arrested. <laughs> the um, regional safety inspector, Neil Savoy, is reported to have said, we know he broke some part of the Federal Aviation Act, and as soon as we decide which part it is, some type of charge will be filed. <laughs> Sounds like the federal government, doesn't it? We'll figure out something. He was found, fined $4,000 and they charged him with uh, four violations of the Federal Aviation Act. Three of them are really lame. But uh, over the next year, it was less than a year, he got them brought down to one charge of uh, violating FAA rules and uh, a $1,500 fine. Now, when he was arrested, a newspaper reporter said, what in the world possessed you to do a crazy stunt like this? And the only thing that he said was, a man can't just sit around. And I thought, you know, that's an interesting statement. 
A man can't just sit around. He had come to realize that uh, watching soap operas and going through the daily grind that everybody else on the ground was going through just did not give him significance in life. There was something in him that made him want to rise above it all. And what he did not realize is that this uh, crazy stunt and uh, his new career as a motivational speaker, which didn't last very long, <laughs> and uh, his a new celebrity status, at least as to celebrity as a nutcase, you know, that that didn't give him significance either because he was so depressed. After 10 years, he finally uh, took his life, suicide, shot himself through the heart. But this had been a dream all his life. He said, I didn't think that by fulfilling my goal in life, my dream, that I would create such a stir and make people laugh. What is your dream in life? What is your goal? Is it something that you could be proud of 10 years from now? Or do you even have anything that drives you away from the boring rat race of life that so many people just are going through feeling like they're on a, a treadmill? <clears throat> We've just come off a series of meetings with Peter Hammond, and I think all of us are convinced here's a man who knows what he wants to accomplish in life. Even when he's having fun with his kids, he knows what he wants to accomplish in life. He's got a goal that drives him a passion to live and something that even makes it worthwhile for the risks that he takes. Now, in contrast, um, I, I was reading that the average number of hours that Americans sit in front of the TV is four hours and 25 minutes a day. Now, that means there's a lot of people who are watching far more than that because they've averaged that for every man, woman, and child uh, upon, upon, in this nation. Four hours and 25 minutes. The only nation that watches more TV on average than the Americans is Japan that watches four minutes a day more. Four hours and 29 minutes a day. But they did a survey of 72 nations on their TV watching uh, behaviors and they found that the average... Worldwide, in these 72 nations anyway, was three hours and 39 minutes a day. And I think this is just mind-boggling, the waste of time that, that, that people have. And so my question is, what is it that drives you away from the television set and makes you do something that's going to count, something that is really significant? Hopefully, it's a motivation uh, that is much grander than what Larry Walters had. You know, at least he recognized something that most people do not recognize, and that is that a man can't just sit around his whole life, right? He realized something. And if you just sit around like the majority of people did in L.A. on that fine sunny day, then your life is going to be a failure. But your life is also going to be a failure if you try to transcend this world the way that Larry Walters did in his own strength, his own methodology, trying to seek meaning through thrills, through praise, through fame, or through fortune. How can our lives count for time and for eternity? Now, if you just look at results alone as making what you're doing feel significance, then you have to look at Noah's life and you have to say, Noah was a failure, at least from one perspective. Now, we know he wasn't a total failure. In fact, he was an incredible success because he not only saved his family, but he saved you and me, right? He saved the whole world in that sense. But back in those days, he would have looked like a total failure. Here he was for 120 years preaching his heart out to a generation who wouldn't listen to him. Not one of them repented. Not one of them changed their behavior. Jonah, on the other hand, did not want to preach his heart out to the city of Nineveh. And God gave him, from an outward perspective, wild success, an entire nation that uh, became, well, an entire city that became converted. And so I want to use those two scriptures to show how Noah and Jonah both had success from God's perspective because they realized two things. First of all, they realized that a godly man or woman or a child can't just Sit around all day long. We have been created not to just sit around. Now, it took a while for Jonah to appreciate that. But when we see this world going down the tubes, we need to be doing something about it. 
And it's my hope that today as we look at these Scriptures, you will be grabbed in your heart and you will want to try to do something about the troubles that are out there in our society. Second, we cannot find our sense of significance by the reactions that other people will give to what we do and what we say. You're going to be forever depressed, forever feel meaningless if your sense of meaning comes from how people react. Instead, we need to be looking to the Lord Jesus Christ His good pleasure, His will that is upon our lives. We need to, with Christ, be able to say, I have come to do Your will, O God. Or as Hebrews 11 words it, to live by faith. Now let's look first of all at the life of Noah. When he preached his heart out to a world who wouldn't listen, you know, he may have seemed as crazy as Larry Walters to the people of that time. And even from hindsight, we might think, Why in the world did he bother preaching? Wasn't anybody going to be saved anyway. Why in the world did he bother preaching? Well, I believe that Noah was convinced of something that Oliver Cromwell was convinced of, that the duty is ours and the results are gone. God's. Ecclesiastes 12, 13-14 sums up our life in a nutshell. It says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, And keep His commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And I want to look, first of all, at how difficult of a job Noah really had before him um, in in his day. Let's read, first of all, verses 1 and 2. Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, Daughters were born to them, but the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful. They took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now, I'm not going to try to settle the question this morning of who are these sons of God, who are the daughters of women. I've actually taught on that in the past, either in Sunday school or preaching or sometime. Um, I'm not going to try to settle who are the giants uh, that were in the land. I happen to believe that the... Sons of God were the believers, probably mainly of the line of Seth, and they were marrying the sons of men. They were marrying unbelievers. But whatever your view, and there's five different views of this passage here, it is very clear that there was a major compromise with sin. There was a lack of antithesis between believers and unbelievers. And it was specifically in the area of romance. Now, God could have used any other area of sin or of righteousness to show this compromise that they had existed in. But I think he chose romance because it is one of the most powerful drives that people have, one of the most visible ways in which the church uh, many times compromises. These men were not basing decisions on law, but rather on desire. They did not allow God to choose, but they chose themselves. They did not follow the biblical qualifications for a spouse. They simply married from physical attraction. And so, these temptations were so strong, they were marrying uh, unbelievers. Now, is that really so different from what is going on in culture and in the church today? There's a rash of believers dating and marrying unbelievers. And there's a rash of compromise in the sexual arena. I was shocked to read the incredibly high statistics of how many teenagers regularly, not just falling into it, but regularly watch pornography. And many people don't even see that they're compromising. According to a large study done by Josh McDowell, 55.7% of Christian teens are sexually active with the teens that they date. 55.7%. We're not talking about people who are getting ready to get married. We're talking about recreational dating. They're not even anticipating marrying uh, these people. Is that not seeing the daughters of men that they are beautiful and taking to themselves as many as they choose? In a sense, I think that it is. Now, there are other areas of compromise as well, but he picks just this one. And why was it that there was this compromise, this lack of antithesis, a difference between believers and unbelievers? I think there could be a number of factors, but one of them, almost always, is that people don't want to be mocked like Larry Walters was mocked. They don't want to be. It's really a pretty small minority of people uh, in the United States that um, 
enjoy looking weird, being the minority. They're proud of it. You know, you'll find a few people who have hundreds of tattoos over their body and, and uh, hundreds of piercings, and uh, they're proud of it. It doesn't bother them, but most people want to fit in with the crowd. They don't want to look like a nutcase. And the reason why tattoos and piercings are increasing is because it's now becoming the in thing to do. And again, people don't want to look different. They want to fit in with the crowd. And so we've got two humanistic answers to sin. Let's just look at some examples of the difference between the humanism of, we'll use Larry Walters as an example, and the humanism of the rest of the crowd. And we'll just pick this one area that Genesis 6 deals with. How do we transcend the world in the area of sexual temptation and lust in the heart? There are some who try to transcend the world the way Larry Walters uh, did in his own strength. And I would put into this category people like uh, Saudi Arabian women who have a, a bag put over their head and they're covered from head to toe uh, in a way that uh, the Muslims feel will keep them pure and keep men pure. There are other people uh, in our own nation who go off to monasteries. They become monks thinking that if they avoid contact with all people, then they will be able to keep themselves pure. And there's nuns who sometimes have that motivation as well, go off to nunneries, and they think that in this way they can please God, they can transcend the world. Now, the reaction of most people is to look at, at things like that and say, man, that is weird. That is so far out. And they want to avoid that as much as they can. And they go in the opposite uh, 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 end of the spectrum. And their motivation is, I want to just make sure I don't look weird like those people do. That's their criteria, to not look like them. And so what do they do? They act like the world. They watch movies like the world. They dress like the world. They date like the world. They fit in with the world, but they still have this desire to transcend the world somehow, keep their hearts pure, if only we can just sort of look like the crowd that we're with. And it does not succeed. It does not succeed. <clears throat> My encouragement to you is to transcend the world, but to do it in a biblical way. And it's true. People are still going to lump you in with the nutcases uh, that are out there. <clears throat> uh, when you dress modestly or you reject the dating model, you refuse to watch certain movies, they're going to la uh, label you as legalistic, as not hip, as so yesterday, as so Larry Walters. They're going to label you that way. But our focus should not be on what the world thinks about us. They're going to hell anyway, aren't they? Our focus should be on what does the God of glory think of us and the ways in which we live. And I believe that God thinks that the rags that Saudi Arabians are forced to dress in degrade women. But I also think that he believes that the immodest apparel of many American women degrades women. Even if the women don't think they're degraded, I believe he believes it's immodest. It degrades women. And so I would challenge you to get your definition of antithesis from the Bible and the Bible alone. Isaiah says, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Neither pagan culture nor pagan counterculture should be the defining mark upon your life. It should be a Christian counterculture. And let's not worry <laughs> with the fact that the, the world thinks Noah's a nut for building an ark. Who needs an ark, you know? Let's not worry about the fact that they think that the things that we are telling the world seem ridiculous. Let's be faithful like Noah was. Now, the second thing that we see in this passage is the way in which the world resisted the Holy Spirit, or rather the way the Holy Spirit resisted the world. It talks about Him striving with these uh, men and women. Anytime a person sins, the Holy Spirit strives with that person, at least initially. Now, you may have assumed that the only people that the Spirit strives with are believers, but listen to what Jesus said about, about uh, the Spirit. When He has come, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. John 16, verse 8. So, just as the Holy Spirit was at work striving with these men in Genesis chapter 6. He continues to be striving with men today in three areas. 
in the area of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. In other words, he's convincing these unbelievers what they are doing is wrong. He's convincing them of what is right and he's convincing them of judgment. In other words, you're not going to get away with the wrong things that you are doing. Now, that is so cool when you're out there picketing or you're out there seeking to influence a politician or whatever the thing may be to know God's on your side. You've got a tool that they do not have. In fact, you know that these people, unless they have gone to the next stage, which we're going to be looking at, that the Spirit is at work in their hearts, striving with them, convincing them of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And so even though they mock you, you can say, you know what? The reason they're angry at me, the reason they're mocking me, is they're trying to shut down the Spirit's work within me. It's an incredible thing to realize that the uh, Spirit of God uh, is at work, and primarily through the speech of people like Noah, that the Spirit works. Now, here too, we can go to extremes. First Peter warns us of two extremes. One extreme is to be so nice, you just fit in with the crowd. Nobody notices you. The other extreme is to be so personally weird and offensive that people won't listen to the message of Christ that you're trying to bring, right? And um, Peter, I've known people like that, but Peter says, look, if you're going to be persecuted, if you're going to be mocked, make sure you're being mocked not for your own personal weirdness and offensiveness, but make sure you're being mocked because of your godly behavior, your godly words. Third, when these people in Genesis resisted the Spirit long enough, eventually He left them and their consciences became hardened. And Romans 1 talks about this as people being given up or being given over to a depraved mind. He no longer puts His restraining grace upon them. And um, in our society, we are witnessing this stage of God's judgment upon our land. People no longer have the ability to blush over perversion. They're not troubled by perversion. Why? Well, the Spirit of God is no longer striving within them. He has given them up. And so they can engage in these perversions without feeling bad about them at all. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Verse 3 says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. And that the reason that the Spirit gives up on working with these people is not because He has no ability to change their hearts. This is what some people assume. No, He goes on. He gives the reason. He says, for he is indeed flesh. Another translation has, for he is indeed mortal. Man is weak. God could change them any time that he chose to change them. But the point is, God is not obligated to. Okay, we must never presume upon his grace. Now, here's my point. Noah continued to preach his heart out and to try to make a difference right up until the day that he went into the ark. It's not up to us to determine, has God given up on this society? It's not up to us to do that. We're going to be seeing later that Nineveh was in just as bad a shape as Genesis, the people in Genesis 6 were, and yet God regenerated that whole city, saved that whole city. And so, ours is the duty. The results are gone. Fourth, this passage speaks of a countdown to judgment. Verse 3 goes on to say, Yet his days shall be 120 years. God was giving a countdown until the flood, which means... Uh, Noah has 120 more years to preach and the people have 120 more years to repent. Now, that's giving a lot of leeway to these people. God only gave 40 days to the Ninevites and yet God is sovereign even in that on how long uh, He gives to people uh, to repent. God converted the Assyrians. He fails to convert the people here. Instead, what Noah is doing is he is preaching judgment upon judgment uh, that is coming upon their heads. And so, what we see with Noah is he's avoiding humanistic accommodationism and he is avoiding humanistic reactionism. It's not enough to say if you're a reactionary type, you know, a man just can't sit around forever. You've got to look to the Scripture for how it is that we need to take our action, not just what the world thinks might work. Well, things continue to get worse in verse 4. And what happens is that people continue to reject the law. Their consciences become harder. Their wickedness automatically becomes greater. There were giants in the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Some people read genetic engineering in here. 
uh, you know, engineering of giants uh, somehow. I don't think you need to read it that way. But whatever the case, they persevered in their compromises and they raised up a generation of people who were giants to men. They're utterly ungodly in God's eyes. And it shows the inevitable downward slide of a society when God does not put the brakes on. The succeeding generation throws off all restraint in verse 5 where it says this, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now that is a sad description of the progress of people into sin. And I've mentioned this to you before, but when we speak of total depravity, we do not mean that people are as bad as they could possibly get. It means that the totality of their being is affected by sin. Their mind, their emotions, their will, their conscience, their body, their spirit. Everything is affected by sin. But when God's restraining grace is not holding back this depravity, these totally depraved people will become more and more depraved. And this is even true of demons. It says in... Matthew 12, verse 45, that there are some demons who are more wicked than other demons. Okay, so there are degrees of wickedness even amongst depraved uh, people. Well, that's what's happening here. They're becoming more and more wicked. Uh, they're being filled to the brim with wickedness. Then in verses 6 through 7, we have God's grief and His wrath being poured out upon a culture that is beyond restoration. It comes a place in a culture where there is no more point of return. The Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth and He was grieved in His heart. We, sh we must never think that God is indifferent to the evils that are in our society. Yes, He is sovereign, but He is still holy. And the actions of these people are an offense to His holiness. Yes, God knows everything that was going on. It was a part of His plan. And yet he is still grieved by the sin that is there. So don't ever think that God is uh, indifferent. He is grieved in America over both the humanist reactionaries as well as the humanists who are trying to fit in uh, with the, the crowd. Verse 7 describes the subsequent wrath. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. And so we have a description of the first possible outcome for America. It is possible that it could be an irretrievable judgment from God's hand. And yet, even in the midst of that apostasy, verse 8 says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He found grace to have an antithesis. He found grace to worship as he ought. He found grace to raise his family in a godly way. He found grace to educate his family in a radical Christian counterculture to what they were going to. I guarantee you, he didn't send his children to government schools. He found grace from the Lord to be holy. He found grace to preach righteousness to that culture. And he rose above that culture, not in helium balloons, but he rose above it in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And according to the New Testament, he was faithful to bring his prophetic rebuke against his generation. Now, would he have been discouraged? Yeah, probably. I think he probably would have been discouraged. But it was what he was called to do. He was called to be faithful and to lead the results up to God. Now, if he had given up preaching to them, because it seemed impossible to make a difference anyway, if he had given up uh, raising his family in a different way, because look at all of the counter... Uh, ways in which these people are influencing, if he had given up maintaining an antithesis because it seems so hopeless of a cause, not only would he have lost the culture, he would have lost his family as well. And so the keeping of his family was a victory. The keeping of his testimony was a victory. And we too, I believe, are called to be faithful, not to be successful in the eyes of the world. Called to be faithful. And this, I believe, is the problem with not all, but many forms of incrementalism. They are trying to win a victory by compromising. Okay? They're trying to win a victory by adopting point number A, compromise. Antithesis is too radical for some Christians. They say, man, you shoot for the stars and you're trying not to compromise. You're not going to win any battles in society. You're going to just be like Noah. 
You know, you're going to lose the political battle altogether. But we need to remember, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And I think, unfortunately, many modern Christian politicians think they are wiser than Noah. And they will trade votes with the heathen. They will vote for a pagan's ungodly, unconstitutional project so that that pagan will vote for their good, righteous project as if voting for a sin can help you win a victory on your own, uh, your own project. You see, even though he has won that particular issue, he has lost the war altogether. He feels, I've won a battle, but he's lost the war because what he has done is he has evaporated, taken away the antithesis. He has shown, I can be bought. Give me the right, right situation. I can be bought on my principles. There are no absolutes for him. We used to have statesmen in Congress who were used to losing on vote after vote after vote. But over time, they began to gain credibility for their courage, their faithfulness, their consistency, their unwillingness to compromise. People like Larry McDonald. You've got to look at the number of votes he lost. But he gained back in the 80s, gained a great deal of credibility because of his statesmanlike stand. He's the only Democrat I've ever voted for. The Democratic Party hated him. <laughs> but an incredible guy from the South. 100% conservative rating, but more importantly, uh, he really was taking on issues from a biblical uh, perspective. Noah was such a statesman. It looked like he didn't win any of the votes, but in God's eyes, he won the battle. He won the war. Because he was the only one left standing, wasn't he? <laughs> he won the war. If we give up because we can't see the success, we're going to lose everything. Okay? If we compromise because antithesis seems like it's not going to give success, we have lost everything. And our generation desperately needs men like Noah with prophetic courage. We certainly do not need Christian politicians who are using the world's methods and the world's strategies in order to try to win a godly thing. Everything from our methods and strategies and tactics to the goals that we are going need to come from God. Okay, that's one side of the equation. A man who had the moral courage and the conviction to stand strong even when no one was buying it. He was willing to be confused with the Larry Walters of this world, but he was not willing to be a Larry Walter, okay? He was willing to be called a nutcase, but he was not willing to trade in the wisdom of God for the wisdom of man so that he could somehow evaporate uh, this false charge that was coming against him. No, he was not willing to do that. Are we willing to stand for the truth even if it means we will not be successful, even if it means we will be mocked? I think we need to do that in education, in politics, in business, in everything. Now, for the second side of the equation, let's turn to Jonah, who was also a preacher of righteousness, but he was a reluctant preacher. He didn't want to preach to the world, even if it meant success. God finally humbled him, and once he did preach, he preached without any compromise whatsoever. Now, unfortunately, his attitudes were wrong, weren't they? He had bad attitudes. He wasn't grieved over Nineveh's imminent destruction like Noah was grieved over the imminent destruction upon the old world. And so his attitudes were quite different from Noah. But in the church, we still find these three attitudes. You find people who grieve over society and are seeking to do something about it. Then you find people who are indifferent to it. You know, we can't make a difference anyway, so why bother? And then you find people you know, who want to blast America to hell a lot sooner than God is going to take it to hell. You've got all three of those categories within the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I discovered something rather interesting in Philippians 1, and actually there's quite a number of other passages relating to this that I'll probably bring up in our discussion Monday night. But God says He would rather have a bad attitude person, bad attitude Christian, who's preaching the truth, Okay? A bad attitude truth teller than having people who are indifferent, who aren't taking any action, who are just sitting around and fitting in. Let me read that for you. Philippians 1, 12 through 18. But I want you to know, brethren, the things which happened to me, and that's referring to his being imprisoned, you know, in jail in Rome, 
that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife. Okay, those are the bad attitude guys. Okay, they haven't learned how to win friends and influence people. He says, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only... That in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. To me, this shows that Paul placed truth as having the supremacy. Even if it's done with a bad attitude, he said he rejoices that the truth is being preached. Now, because of Jonah's antithesis was exactly the same as Noah's, and because he was utterly compromising in his message, he too was faithful despite a bad attitude. We're going to be looking at the difference in results in a moment uh, because Jonah, man, he's just phenomenal, the results that came. But right now, that's irrelevant to what we're discussing. What is important, as far as God was concerned, was the message. He told Jonah, just as he had told Noah, to preach the message and leave the results in his hands. The duty is ours, the outcome God's. Now, you apply that to the political realm, and I think we've got some major adjustments that we need to do. And we should probably give a little bit of background on why it was that Jonah had a bad attitude, why he was so upset with the Ninevites. God tells Noah to go to Nineveh, I mean Jonah, to go to Nineveh, preach that in 40 days Nineveh is going to be destroyed. Jonah does not want to do that because he knows if he goes there and preaches, the people might believe what he is preaching, they might repent, and then God has to relent. Uh, read in Jeremiah 18 sometimes. This is a universal principle that God has put into place that when He pronounces judgment against a nation and that nation repents, God will always lift the judgment if they repent. Why? Because He's the only one who could give that repentance, right? But God will relent from that repentance. And so Jonah, he's saying, God, these people need to go to hell. These people need to be judged. I don't want them saved. Please don't send me there to be preaching to Nineveh. Now, some people have said, what is wrong with Jonah that he's doing this? Is he a racist or what's going on? I don't think he was a racist because if you look on the boat, there were Phoenicians on that boat. That was a totally different race as well. If he was a racist, he would have been racist to them. He could have had them go down right along with him. Would it really matter if he went down with the ship and he went down with them? He could say, yeah, I'm going to go down and take a few others with me. No, he didn't have that attitude. Instead, he spared them when he didn't have to. He taught them, and it says that they worshipped the one true God. Okay? So, I don't think racism is the answer there. Look at chapter 3 and verse 8. This is um, part of the king's, uh, king of Nineveh's decree of repentance. It says, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The king picks out two things that they were notorious for, his evil way and the violence. Now, if you read the book of Nahum and you study the biblical and the archaeological evidence, you will find that the Assyrians were so wicked and so violent it was horrifying. In fact, uh, I'm, I'm a, uh, an archaeology buff. Every time I read and see the pictures and the frescoes and the statues, I am made sick, it, sick by it. And this was many centuries afterwards. They were fixated on torture, glorified torture. And Jonah had no doubt witnessed the cruel torture, the slow deaths of family and friends. Burned into his memory were the screams probably of tortured children while these Assyrians laughed. Every time the Assyrians come to mind, his emotions are churning with the memory of ghastly demonic cruelty. Now, that is a background. Can you sympathize with Jonah? I certainly do. If I was there, I'd be saying, get him, Lord. <laughs> because these are awful people. They don't deserve to live. How many here have watched the, the, the movie um, Indiana Jones, uh, Temple of Doom? 
Okay, a few of you have. I, I don't recommend the movie, but uh, when I watched that, I thought, whoa, that's a good description of why the Canaanites were destroyed. Uh, but I think a great description of why Jonah was so upset. You multiply that several fold. I wouldn't know how many fold you'd have to multiply it. But you can get a little bit of a sense of why Jonah really wants these people dead. He wants them judged. My point in bringing this up is that Nineveh had degenerated into sadism and sexual perversity. They were like the crowd in Genesis chapter 6. I'm not going to get into the details of the sexual perversity, but they were like Genesis chapter 6. And it wasn't Jonah's attitudes. It wasn't their liking his message or anything else that um, measured his obedience. It was boldly proclaiming the truth. It was boldly maintaining an antithesis. No gray areas. Now, some of you get on the case of Christians who are overly critical and who have a bad attitude like Jonah did. And I can understand that because we should have a good attitude. God's grace should conquer that and enable us to be a saver of life unto life. But let me tell you something. You ought to get much more on the case of the people in the middle who are utterly indifferent to what's going on in America than you are getting on the case of those who have bad attitudes. I'd much rather have a Jonah who's trying to make a difference, who's preaching the truth, even though he's got a bad attitude, than the people who just sit in the middle. They're not not getting off their behinds and trying to accomplish anything in America. And so let's have a little bit of patience and mercy uh, with the Jonas of this world. Look at Jonah 3, verses 1 through 4. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Not according to how he thought it would work, uh, what he thought people would be receptive to, but exactly the way God wanted it said, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. Uh, If you read in chapter 4, and uh, verse 11, it says that there were 120,000 infants. Those, those who didn't know the difference between their right hand and their left hand. Now, if there's that many infants, this is a massive city. It's bigger than Omaha. Okay? Uh, a huge city. How in the world is Jonah going to be making a difference? Well, in one sense, it really doesn't matter. The duty is his. The results are God's. And God has frequently used similar odds to achieve his purposes. You can think of Athanasius. He stood against the whole world, against the emperor. And people were telling Athanasius, you know, you're not going to succeed. The emperor is against you. Don't rock the boat. At least you can have some influence if you shut up and stay here in this church and don't get kicked out of this city. People called him a nut. Well, we don't remember who were the ones who called him a nut, but we do remember Athanasius. Martin Luther had the same thing. He had this burning drive from God to make a difference. In his community, and people were telling him, Luther, calm down. You're going to get yourself killed. And Luther said, I've got to preach the whole counsel of God. I've got to be bold. And uh, he made an incredible difference. I mean, even the little girl in Syria, the, the maid during an earlier age, was able to turn the heart of Naaman and eventually King Ben-Hadad. God loves to use minorities to make a huge difference. Anyway, back to verse 4. It says, And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, I would have been scared to death to be in Nineveh. As cruel as these people are, skinning people alive. And they would put frescoes and statues of all kinds of sadistic torture. They meditated on these things day and night. I would have been scared to death to go into that city and wonder, What's going to happen to me when I start preaching Uh, to these people. And there are a lot of people who feel the pressure of being all alone. When people, Christians, go to Congress, they say when they're standing against the popular opinion, it makes them feel so small, so vulnerable, so much like an idiot. It doesn't matter that they know that they're true. They still feel like an idiot. Why? Because... They're not with the crowd and nobody likes to feel like an oddball. We're so tempted to compromise and soften the message. Well, Jonah, for whatever reason, did not compromise. And we could praise the Lord for that. 
and it miraculously resulted in a great awakening in that city. Verses 5 through 10. So the people of Nineveh believed God. And if you want to put a marginal reference there, Matthew 12, verse 41, uh, Jesus says that this was a genuine faith and a genuine repentance. Christ says they were soundly converted. Matthew 12, verse 41. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Now, could God convert the mayor of our city, the city council, the county uh, commissioners, uh, the judges of our city? Could He do that overnight? I think we'd have to say if we believe in the sovereignty of God, of course God could do that. Absolutely, yes. And we'd also have to admit that there have been cities since the time of Christ's death that have been converted almost overnight. It's within God's uh, power to be able to do so. Well, look at verses 6 through 10. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. If they turned away from their sin, this means, from the smallest to the greatest, this means there was a thoroughgoing reformation that happened in that city. There were cultural changes that happened throughout that entire city. I, uh, just looking at the archaeology, my guess is Jonah would have been skinned alive and tortured uh, if he had not given a bold, if he had just given a compromised message you know, of uh, what things he thought might be able to be achieved. Um, but he was bold for the Lord and there was not an empty faith. It was a life-transforming faith. Not the kind of conversion many evangelicals supposedly have that makes no difference in their lives. It was culture changing. Now, I'm not going to spend any more time on Jonah because I think it's um, a fairly obvious the point here. But we do need to have strategies that... Uh, that come from the Bible. Our, our sights need to be set higher uh, when we engage our culture. And so I want to end by giving several applications, several lessons as we enter this election season. The first lesson is that both Noah and Jonah avoided reactionary humanism as much as they avoided the go-along-with-the-flow kind of humanism. Don't think that God is on the side of American humanistic conservatism just because they have borrowed a few values from the Christian worldview and then proceeded to secularize them and keep God and Bible out of the discussion. Don't think God's happy with a secularized view of, um, uh, of values. God doesn't take sides in the Republican and the Democratic debates. Okay? He expects them to take sides with Him. We are not ambassadors for a political party. We are ambassadors for God. God isn't interested in simply slowing down humanism. He is interested in overthrowing humanism on every level. And He can do so by way of judgment, irretrievable judgment, as He did in the days of Noah. And God would be perfectly glorified if He did that. Or He can do so by converting our nation like He did in the days of Jonah. And he would be perfectly glorified if he did that. <clears throat> but we need to make sure that um, uh, we um, oppose humanism wherever it is found. The second lesson is that the statistics I started the sermon off with ought to scare the daylights out of us. To me, it shows that the church is in deep trouble. Scripture says judgment begins at the house of God. Okay? Doesn't begin with the pagans. Judgment begins at the house of God. And I think we've got to do everything that we can to turn around the church of Jesus Christ and to turn around our culture. Some Christians will try uh, to marginalize you when you bring the pure message of the Word. And they'll try to tell you, get real. Focus only on the issues that you can win. By whose standards can you win them? Just our own arm of flesh? 
What does God say about our own arm of flesh? They say, get real. Focus on issues we can win. Some might even accuse you of legalism, of being cultic, if you press home the claims of God's law. Did you realize that they did this to John Calvin? He was not a hero in his city at the beginning. They threw stones at him. They named their dogs after him. They sicked their dogs on him. Uh, I don't think there is almost any man that's had as much influence upon the world and culture as John Calvin did, and yet to this day he is maligned. He is slandered. Even by Christians, he is slandered. And so what we need to do, if we want to have an impact, we can't worry about what other people are going to say about us. We can't worry about that. The grave danger that faces America is too serious to worry about the niceties of what other people think. We've got to bring God's law back to our nation. And so we must be preachers of righteousness. Third, never presume upon God's mercy. Genesis 6 says, My spirit shall not always strive with man. We never know when God has had so much that He says, That's it. This nation is coming to judgment. And I think this too should stir us out of apathy and make us realize that a godly man and a godly woman can't just sit around forever. Fourth, superficial changes are not enough to save our nation at this stage. They are not enough to save our nation. Apart from God's Spirit doing a thoroughgoing conviction, bringing thoroughgoing repentance in our nation, uh, the cause is just as hopeless as it was for Noah preaching against the people back then because the Spirit was not intending to save them. That's one of the reasons why I say that prayer and repentance has got to be at the heart of what we are doing because apart from the Spirit of God uh, bringing about these changes, we're not going to see the difference in America that needs to be there. Uh, this is not a political battle that we are in. This is a spiritual battle and it begins on our knees and yes, it goes into action. But we have got to be um, taking the spiritual warfare seriously. Fifth, we must resist with the teaching of the law as Noah did and as Jonah did and leave the results in God's hands. Now, if it comes to uh, the preaching of Noah, which was a, a very sincere preaching or the preaching of the insincere Jonah, obviously I'm going to take the Noah, you know. I'm going to say, praise God, you know, that we've got some people who are not overcome by evil, but they're overcoming evil with good. But I, I would rather uh, have Jonah's bold but bad attitude preaching in our nation than the mealy mouth preaching that comes out of many evangelicals' mouths. Keep in mind Philippians 1.18, for Paul, faithfulness in bringing the truth to bear in Caesar's household, in his palace, can you get any more political than that? The truth he brought to bear was more important than the packaging that came around it. Yes, we need to do it in love. Speak the truth in love. That's the command of Scripture. But it is so important we bring the truth. And so point F says faithfulness is more important than success. If God wants us to speak to our nation with the lack of success that Noah had, so be it. Let's speak the truth eloquently, fully, and perseveringly. If God wants us to bring uh, the truth and have overnight success like Jonah did, so be it. Ours is not to guess the future. Okay? That's impossible. Ours is to be faithful, to vote faithfully, to raise our children faithfully, to influence other evangelicals faithfully. Ours is the duty. The outcome belongs to God. And yet there are so many Christians who gauge their actions based only on what they think is politically expedient, what is politically possible. Okay? Even when outstanding candidates are available to be voted for, they will vote for an ungodly candidate who has already promised that he's going to violate the Constitution. Now, he doesn't say it in those words, but he says, I'll, I'll, I'll bring about better education. I'll bring about better welfare. I'll do this and the other thing which the Constitution says he cannot do. So they're willing to vote for a candidate who's already declaring himself to be a tyrant rather than voting for two other candidates, one of the two, who are constitutional. And what is their reason? Well, the better of two tyrants. You know, I've got to vote for the better of two tyrants because these guys are not electable. But let me ask you something. Is it not glorifying to God? Is it not honoring to God to do like Noah did? To make the right decisions in life, to speak the right words in life, and not have outward success? 
I think it is glorifying to God to take that kind of a decision. Now, can God uh, do a miracle and bring these candidates in? Yes, He can. And we ought not to uh, count God's hand too short that it cannot save. He can do that, but that's in God's hands. What does God say we should do when we have the privilege of voting, have the privilege of being involved in politics? It's to be faithful, to speak the truth, to make the decisions that will glorify God and leave the results in His hand. And then finally, it is possible to walk with God even in the midst of a wicked nation. It is possible to raise children who will be modest, serious, holy, devoted to the Lord. And even though the world has adversely affected the church, it need not be so. If we will maintain an antithesis, if we will, if we will say, Lord, I want to be immediately obedient to the promptings of Your Holy Spirit, if we will maintain the, the, the difference between right and wrong and not fall into this gray, wishy-washy matter that so many evangelicals want us to say, we can't really decide because it's also gray and muddy. No, if we will be grieved over what He is grieved over, hate what God hates and love what He hates, and love what He loves, then God can keep us from stumbling. And this is the promise in Jude verse 24. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. Now obviously my desire is to see our nation transformed and to see the churches of Jesus Christ reformed and, and changed. And we need to do everything that we can to promote that. But even if we have no outward success, we can be joyful if we are finding grace in the eyes of the Lord. And we're continuing to persevere in that grace. And so, my admonition to you this morning is to transcend the world. Get off your duffs. Transcend the world. But don't do it in a humanistic way. Do it by the grace and the law of God. Amen. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your patience in our lives. We see the incredible patience that you showed for 120 years and the incredible patience that You showed for 40 days in Nineveh. And Father, You have been showing patience upon patience in our own nation. Father, we do not want to presume upon that patience, but we desire that we would make a difference. And on our part, we repent as a church, as part of the bride of Jesus Christ for the iniquity that has crept into our lives, for the ungodliness in the sexual arena, for the ungodliness in the economic arena, for so much ungodliness in thought and word and deed. And we say, Father, please forgive the church of Jesus Christ and do not cast her off. We deserve to be cast off as salt that has lost its flavor. We deserve to be trampled under the foot of the humanists. But we pray, O oh God, that You would not allow that to happen to the church of Jesus Christ, but that You would bring forth full-flowered reformation greater than any other reformation that has ever happened, would You not be glorified, O Father, with this? Would not Your Son be glorified? Father, You have said, ask of Me and I will give You the nations for Your inheritance. And we ask for the nation of America and pray that it would become part of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it would glorify Him, that it would lift up His name, it would follow His laws, and it would once again become a great missionary sending agency, not sending out people with fluff, not sending out people with pietism, not sending out people with a, a theology that is so enervated that it cannot make any changes in Africa or elsewhere. Well, Father, I pray that You would stir up a church of Jesus Christ that is willing to preach the whole counsel of God and lay down its lives for You. Help us, Father, to be a church that is willing to cross over the barbed wire and take field after field for our general King Jesus. Lord God, be glorified, I pray, in this coming election. Father, You can bring judgment and be glorified in that, or You can bring change and, uh, for the better and be glorified in that. But I pray that You would help us as a people to be faithful in our voting, not to vote the way the world does, uh, refusing to vote for the best and opting for something else because we do not have the faith to see what Your hand could do. But Father, help us to make a difference. Make us salt and light in our community. 
And we'll be sure to give you all the praise and the honor and the glory because only you can change our hearts to fear you more than we fear man. Only you can give us this burden and this passion to get out there when our flesh calls us to sit down and to be couch potatoes. Father, forgive us for being couch potatoes. Forgive us, uh, those of us, Father, who, who watch TV with inordinate hours that could be freed up for kingdom service. Father, we know there is a place for relaxation, but give us balance in our lives and be glorified in all that we think and say and do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.